Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast by Renew. Great to be with you again today. My name is Chris. In this episode, Dave Clayton talks about what it looks like to see a revival, what it could look like to see a hunger for God return in many of the churches and hearts in America. He talks about the ease of getting in an apathetic lifestyle, how easy it can be, and really how to get our hunger back for God, what that can look like, how God really desires our hearts in that. This session is taken from the Renew Gathering in 2022. Let's go ahead and check this out. Hey, what's up? We're going to go ahead and get started with the afternoon session, you know, the right before dinner kind of crowd. My name's Dave. So honored that we get to be together this evening. Uh, I want to just kind of jump right in. I know we're running behind schedule. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. If I would have been on top of it, I would have sent Jason some slides and these would have been up on the screen, but I was not on top of it, so I ask for your forgiveness. So you're going to have to go old school. Either get your Bibles out, pull up, pull up your phones, whatever you want to do. Um, but I just want to pray for you. And this morning, as I was praying about our time, I just had this really simple, I just had this really simple image as I was praying for this group right now. And I didn't know who would be in here, but the image was just of, of Jesus just sitting at your feet, which may feel like an interesting image, but the image was of Jesus sitting at your feet, washing your feet because he loves you and he cares for you and he sees you in the context of your ministry. He sees you in the context of your work. And as I was praying, I just saw that image this morning of the Lord just washing your feet. I just sensed him just saying, hey, I just want you to pour out my love on these amazing people as you just share the word. Just pour out my love on them. They're, they're, they're servants. They're, uh, they're, some of them are tired. Some of them are encouraged. Some of them are filled up. Some of them are worn out. They're all across the board. He goes, he goes, I am serving them. I am loving them. And I just want you to pour out the word upon them. So I don't know how you come in this afternoon, where you are in your story, in your journey. I want to take just a few minutes where we're going to talk about just what it looks like to be renewed in our hunger for Jesus, to be renewed in our hunger for who he is. And I just want to just begin by praying. And so if you feel comfortable, I just invite you to just kind of extend your hands out in front of you just in this posture of receiving not just a message or a sermon, we're just gonna really ask that what we will receive is the love of Christ himself um, as he's among us uh, this evening. And so, Lord, I love you. I'm so grateful for your presence here. I'm grateful for every man and every woman, every, every leader, every elder, every preacher, pastor, volunteer, every man and woman created in your image that is not just loving you and serving you, but they care enough about what you're doing in the world to give up their time and their energy to come and be here in this place to receive. And so Jesus, as we open your word, as we fix our heart and our attention and our minds on you, um, would we just receive your love? And then Lord, would we turn around and get down on our knees at your feet and return that love to you? So we open your word. So God, I love you. So grateful, grateful for the opportunity and the gift uh, to love you and to love my brothers and sisters. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen. Last summer, one of my friends, his name's Kevin. He's a pastor here in the city. He leads an amazing church that's just a few miles away from the church 
that I have the joy of serving here in downtown Nashville. In fact, a lot of people here in the city, kind of the joke is like, hey, can you, buy, can you guys actually be such good friends because your churches are rival churches? And we always love la- laughing at that, you know, because we, we reach a lot of folks kind of in the same window of life in the same part of town, but he's one of my closest friends. We talk almost every single day. And so last summer he called me and he said, hey, Dave, do you want to take a revival road trip with me? Which is like the nerdiest kind of pastor conversation. You know, my friends who are not in ministry, that's what they would expect ministers to talk about, which I promise we talk about other things. But we love talking about revivals. We love thinking about these moments where you look out in human history and Jesus does something in an instant that our sermons and our strategies cannot accomplish in a century. I love these moments where God just touches down undeniably in a culture, in a life, in a family, in a heart, in a neighborhood, in a church, and he does something. And this has been one of the things that has kind of always bonded Kevin and I to one another is this almost ridiculous and yet I believe biblical belief that God is in the business of doing what no man can ask or imagine, that he loves to turn cultures and nations and churches on their head. And so he and I are always together going, man, what would it look like if in our day and our time God got a hold of this city again? And so when he called me and said, hey, do you want to go on this revival road trip? I'm like, I'm in. I don't know where you want to go. And, and he said, hey, there's this little place just a few hours away from here in Cane Ridge. And I'm like, bro, that's my background. That's my history. Those are my people. I'm in. And so maybe uh, you don't know the, the story or the history of Cane Ridge, but we got in his car and we drove about four hours north. And even today with cars and good road systems, it's inconvenient to get there. But we get to this place where... 221 years ago on August 6th, 1801, this small little church dared to believe that God would do the impossible among them. They were, they were living in a moment where their nation was in, our nation in that time was in this place of rapid spiritual decline. In the early 1800s, sin was not just tolerated, sin was not just celebrated, sin was not just legislated, it was actually propagated. It was systemically propagated uh, into all of the things that were happening in the culture. In fact, a lot of people in that day and age were going, there's not a lot of hope for the church, there's not a lot of hope for the ways of God. And yet there was this little church on the frontiers of Kentucky that dared to believe that God was still in the business of doing the unthinkable. And so in this small little one room, kind of log cabin, church that they would meet in. They would pray through the night on Saturday nights, and then on Sunday mornings, about a hundred or so would come together, and they would seek the face of God on behalf of the little area they served, the people they served, the nation they were a part of. And so leading up to that moment in August of 1801, they began sending out word that they were going to have a communion service. And this was before, you know, good roads and good transportation and airplanes and all the infrastructure. This was before TikTok or Instagram or email or any of the things that could help this go viral. I have no idea what they expected to show up that day. But this small little church of 100 or so had gotten the word out. And on August 6, 1801, more than 20,000 people show up. And I just go, how nuts would that be? You're planning, you know, a barbecue for 220,000 come? No hotels, no fast food, no Airbnb. I just go, I want you to just wrestle with the inconvenience of this moment. And guys, if you know the story of Cane Ridge, what the people got that day was so much more than any of them had bargained for. They didn't get songs and sermons and strategies alone. What they got was a heavenly impartation of the presence of God so thick, so glorious, so beautiful, so radical that men and women and children could could not stand up straight under the weight of God himself. And for seven days, 
They're there in these fields laid out flat (laughs) under the presence of God, people preaching the gospel, I mean, all sorts of things. And I I remember last summer sitting in that small little, you know, 100-person log cabin church just going, what would it have been like to have been in a place where the presence of God touched down? (laughs) I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there? To be in that space and to go, man, the people here, they're not concerned with when they're gonna get their next meal or where they're gonna sleep tonight. To be in a community of people like that who just were hungry for God. I mean, I long for revival. (laughs) I long for that that stirring. I've I've seen glimpses, nothing to that scale. (laughs) I've seen glimpses of revival. I remember years ago, one of my dear friends, Will, who helped us start the church in downtown Nashville, one of the guys that's actually been leading worship today for us. Remember Will and I got invited to India and we were invited to come teach at this conference. We had no idea what to expect. We have this heart for what God's doing in that part of the world. And so we show up at this conference in India, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, India. And we show up and there's this huge tent in this field that can seat about 4,000 people. And we're like, wow, this is crazy. And all of these folks are showing up from all over India and from all over the, the, the countries that border Northern India. And it begins to dawn on me as these people are arriving, I'm going, oh, I'm going where are these people going to sleep? <laughs> like, there's no hotels, there's no, there's no infrastructure. There's, there, I'm like, where are all of these people going to go? And, and the guy that was organizing the conference that had invited us, he goes, oh, a lot of them will just kind of sleep out here. They brought mats. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And for the next three or four days, I watched these people Come together, no flair, no swag, like no entertainment, just come together for the word of God and the people of God and the, and the presence of God to, to sleep in fields. And I went, oh my goodness, these people in India love Jesus the way that Americans love Bonnaroo or Woodstock or Alabama football or whatever it was. And I go, can you imagine what it would be like to be in a community where people hungered? longed for God. In our context, not to be hard on us, but man, in our American Christianity, it's, it's hey, how do, we, how do we do conferences that fit in with people's attention spans and how do we keep it moving and how do we keep them entertained and how do we make it convenient and how do we, how do, we do this? And for whatever reason, we still can't seem to keep our own attention. Man, to be in a place where people hunger. I go, man, to be at Cane Ridge in that moment, to, to be in the fields of India. I remember before those sessions would start, we'd show up in the tent. There was nothing to do. There was nowhere to go. There was no entertainment. And so these men and women would show up and they'd sit in the tent two hours early before the next session was even supposed to start. And they'd sit there and someone would just start singing and everybody else would jump in and someone would, and I'm like, this is crazy. It almost feels biblical. <laughs> And I'm like, God, give me some of that. Give us some of that. Or think about a moment. Years ago, my in-laws had taken Sydney and I on this awesome vacation. They, they paid for everything. Took us on this Alaskan cruise, which is a crazy experience. And a couple of days into that cruise, 
one of the guys that had been waiting kind of on our little block of rooms, you know, giving us towels every day and making sure we had everything we needed. His name was Alvin, just this amazing uh, young guy. And he gets talking with me and he goes, hey, what do you do for a living? And I tell him, you know, I'm a church planter. I'm a disciple maker. I like to preach the word of God. And he just lights up and he goes, man, I'm a church planter too. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And I go, like, where? And he goes, I planted a church on this boat. Like, whoa, that's amazing. He said, do you want to come preach at my church this week? And I thought, dude, do you know what a vacation is? It's the last thing I want to do. But because I'm a Christian from the South, I looked at him and I lied. And I said, yes, I would love to preach at your church. When does your church meet? He said, it meets on Thursday nights at 11 o'clock. And I'm like, bro, that's not very seeker sensitive. 11 o'clock is a terrible time for a church. Why do you meet at 11 o'clock on Thursday nights? I'll never forget this. He said, most of us work 12 to 15 hour, 15 hour days. Most of us six or seven days a week. And he goes, but we get off at 1045. And so we do church on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll, we'll worship, we'll have the word, we'll take communion and we'll do fellowship. We'll wrap up a little bit before two, get a few hours of sleep and go back to work. And I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> who are you? So that night, sure enough, Thursday night rolls around, 10.30, he knocks on my door, he escorts me into the bottom of this boat, and I get in this room, small little room, about 100 people show up from 50 different nations, the worship team gets up there, I'm convinced none of them had ever touched the instruments before they started trying to lead us in worship, it was a terrible noise unto the Lord, but they're playing, it's like they're learning the instrument as they're leading worship, but guys, the presence of God was in the room, poured out on the, on the room. And I get up and preach, and I'm telling you, it wasn't a very good sermon. My expectations were low, and I was on vacation mode, so I don't apologize about it. But I preach, and I don't even think it was that good of a sermon. But I get done, and they say, hey, can you give us another one? And I'm like, is that because it was really bad, and you want me to have another shot, or is that because it was really good? And I go, oh, it's neither. It's just that you're so hungry for the Lord. You don't want to stop with 20 minutes and an application point. You want the unfiltered Word of God. <laughs> And so I give them another one and then we break up and we, we take communion and we feast and we wrap up around two o'clock and then a few hours later, I see them serving us on the breakfast line and I go, oh my goodness. Oh, that God might touch us again. That God might stir our hearts once again. He might burn something up inside of us where we go, man, we long for more than sermons and strategies and great ideas and good techniques. But, but no, we actually long for God himself. And guys, here's this beautiful thing that you see all throughout revival history, all throughout scripture. If there's, I know it's been a long day and you've got a lot of content. So if you only hear one thing I say, here's the big idea. You can tattoo this on your soul if you'd like. But here's the big idea is that God loves to show up wherever he's wanted. He shows up where he's wanted. <laughs> And behind every revival, you'll find things like prayer and you'll find things like preaching and you'll find things like repentance and this longing for holiness. And I'm just telling you, all of those things are good. You'll find evangelistic strategies. But the lowest common denominator of every single revival is not a cool church or a great strategy or a young preacher or a great band. Behind every great revival is this raw, unadulterated hunger for God himself. And where God is wanted, God loves to show up. <laughs> and you see it over and over and over. And over the last couple of years, you know, leading and serving and walking through the midst of what's just been such a crazy time through COVID and all the stuff that we've all been through. I know you've all felt it. 
as leaders and as followers of Jesus, there's so much we've lost. You know, one of my mentors said something to me that really stuck with me about uh, 18 months ago. He said, one of the most difficult things uh, of the moment we're leading in is he says, you are wrestling with prolonged uncertainty and undefined grief. He goes, in other words, you don't know how long the uncertainty is going to go and you don't actually know what you've lost yet. <laughs> he goes, and as a lot of leaders over the last couple of years ago, man, we've lost people and we've lost sleep and we've lost time and we've lost hope and we've lost hair and we've lost all these things. Like we've just lost stuff. But here's the thing that has rattled me the most about so many of the leaders that I've sat down with, including myself at times, is that I think the thing that has been lost across the church in our landscape is a hunger for the Lord. Man, I hear a hunger. Man, if we could just get back to 2019. <laughs> if we could just get back to 20, like there's almost this golden air. If we could just get back. Guys, I'm just telling you, I do not believe that God is in the business of trying to get us back. I believe he's in the business of trying to move us forward. And I believe the way that we move forward is not in strength or in strategy. It is on our knees as he begins to stir up in us once again a heavenly hunger because God loves to show up wherever he is actually wanted. And you see this in the scriptures in profound ways. Earlier this summer, I was given the gift of a, a sabbatical. I got a month off. In fact, I'm ready for another one already. I've been back like five weeks and I'm like ready for another one. And so maybe I did it wrong. I'm not sure if I did it wrong, but I came back. I'm like, I'm ready for another break. I could, I could do that again. Let's double it this time. And, but towards the end of my sabbatical, I, I read this passage out of Luke chapter nine that I have no idea. I know you've all had this experience. I have read this scripture no telling how many times, but literally when I read it, it was as if I had never seen it before. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen before? It's like you want to actually get another Bible and it's like, is it in that other Bible too? Oh, it's there. <laughs> it's like, I, I just never seen it. So simple. Luke chapter nine, look at verse 51 with me. We'll just kind of go verse by verse. And then I just want to illuminate this big idea that we're talking about. It says, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So much we could talk about. I just want you to notice a few things. That, that Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, sent to bring about the kingdom of God, he was operating on the calendar and the prophetic time clock of God. That Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his actions, nothing about it was random. Nothing about it was haphazard. There was this resoluteness about his life that was dialed into the reality of the moment that he was in. And I think this is important for us as leaders. If we we're gonna really be like the men of Issachar who understood the times and what it was that Israel needed to, to do about it, there's this peace in us that I believe has to sit in the presence of the Lord and say, okay, God, it's not business as usual. It's not as we used to do things. Would you show us where we are in the world? Would you show us where we are in your prophetic calendar? Would you line us up with that so that we can live with this resoluteness of Jesus? It's as if Jesus, spoiler alert, I think he actually did know, but it's as if he knew that his life was marked by a prophetic reality. It says the time, the set time, the appointed time as it approached, he set his face resolutely for Jerusalem, verse 52. And then he sent messengers on ahead of him 
who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. I love this out of verse 52 is it's not just that his life was in line with God's prophetic calendar. It's not just that he was resolute in this, but he sends his messengers ahead of him to get this unsuspecting village ready for the gift of God's glory that was ready to be imparted to them. Guys, I want you to notice this about Jesus. It's so beautiful. His love, his power, his strength, his mercy, his sense of humor, his kindness. I mean, we could just sit here and dote on the the beauty of Christ all afternoon and never exhaust the glory of who he is. Here's what I love, though, about Jesus. He never forces his goodness on anyone. And he goes, man, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to bring this goodness. And he goes, but I want you to be ready to host that goodness. And so he sends messengers out. It's what the Lord did with John the Baptist before Jesus was born. It's what happened with the prophets. It's what happened here in Luke chapter nine. I believe it's part of the mandate that God has put upon your shoulders, whether you realize it or not. God has sent you out and I out. He sent me out as a messenger into the world to go, hey, in line of what God is doing, this moment in history that we're in, in light of what's stirring up God, we want, to, we want to prepare the people around us to be ready to welcome you into their lives. Verse 53, this is the big verse that we'll come back to. I, I don't think I'd ever notice this verse. But the people there, what? Somebody shouted out, just, but the people there did what? They did not receive him. They did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, now I think this next verse is really funny. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> it's, it's sinful, I'm sure. <laughs> but I just love this moment. I just love trying to picture, okay, if you were here with Christ when this happened, James and John, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> I, I'm convinced that if Jesus wasn't so resolutely set about his task, he probably would have paused and go, yeah, go for it, guys. I'd love to see you do this. <laughs> I would love to see you try to bring down fire from the heaven, but like, I love this. He's just like in the, he's just in go mode here. He goes, no, I don't want you to do that. Like, have you not learned anything about my heart over the last three years? (laughs) So Jesus turned and rebuked them, verse 55, verse 56. And then his disciples went with him to what? Another village. Jump back to verse 53 real quick. Here Jesus was getting ready to, to come with all of his love, with all of his power, with all of his blessing, with all of his hope, with all of his teaching, with all of his presence. He was getting ready to show up in this village. He was gonna bless them in ways that stories would just go for centuries. Boom, 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 boom. And he shows up to that moment ready to enter in and they go, we don't want you. And Jesus, with all of his goodness, he goes, I'm gonna treat you like a gentleman. I won't force my goodness on anybody. I will go where I'm wanted. And you see this over and over and over through scripture. You see this over and over through revival history is that God loves to show up where he's wanted and he forces himself on nobody. And I think one of the questions that I've I've just been wrestling with in this season, just personally, like if nobody else is in the room, if it's just me, and one of the questions I've been wrestling with in this season is God, what is my hunger for you actually like? Like, am I hungry? You've probably heard the statistic that says that the average first-time visitor to your church decides within seven minutes if they're not coming back. 
So what are they encountering in those seven minutes that has the potential to make or break their experience? I'm Abby Barris, designer and ministry veteran, and I would love to help you make those seven minutes as effective as possible. You can find me at abbybarrisinteriors.com or at churchdesignhelp.com to learn more about how I can help you create strategic spaces that support your processes, communicate your values, and make space for everyone. Like, like, do I hunger for the Lord the way that I did when I first came to Christ? Do you hunger for the Lord? Do you think about him? It, like when you read what David talks about in the Psalms, like some of the Psalms, the intimacy that David had with the Lord, it's almost uncomfortable, especially if we're casual cultural Christians. You know, David goes, man, I lay on my bed at night. I lay awake. I think about you. My soul pants for you. I, I long for you. And like sometimes like our play it safe cultural Christianity, we go, man, that guy's a little bit out there. And this is one of the things that God's just been stirring up in me. May we as the American church not normalize our lukewarmness. We've baptized our lukewarmness and we've called it relevance or we've called it cultural sensitivity. And I go, no, it's just cold. And I'm convinced that when the Lord is looking for a place not just to visit. He's not looking for visitation. He's looking for habitation. And when he's looking for habitation, he's looking for men and women that are hungry, that are longing for him to come. But he only shows up where he's wanted. He only comes where there's this desire, this, this longing and I want to differentiate because there's, there's a difference because so often when I reflect on these things with some of the guys and the gals that Sydney and I are discipling, almost immediately people go, no, I'm, I'm hungry for the Lord. But if we're not careful, the things that we begin to articulate is not actually a hunger for the Lord himself. It's just a hunger for what the Lord provides. And, and there's a difference in being hungry for the blessings of God and being hungry for the blesser himself. Does that make sense? Just kind of give me some verbal affirmation if we understand that, that there's a difference between being hungry for what God gives us and being hungry just for God himself. You could, you could walk out on the streets of downtown Nashville, like, like going to Broadway, which is just absolute madness all the time. And you could walk up to any heathen on the street and just list off the fruit of the Spirit and ask anyone there if they want those things. Hey, do you want love? Do you want joy? Do you want peace? <laughs> Everybody there, every redneck with a beer in their hand is, I want that, I want that, I want that. The question's not, do you want the blessings? It's, do you want the blesser? In John chapter six, Jesus feeds the multitudes and they go, hey, we want you to do another trick for us. Can you pull off another miracle? And Jesus goes, no, you just want bread, but I'm trying to give you the bread of life. And there's, a, there's the difference. And God shows up in power. God shows up in might. He transforms hearts and homes and marriages and lives and churches and cultures and nations. He, tra he transforms them. Not through the lives of the smartest, not through the most strategic, not always even through, you know, just the most put together. He, he shows up looking for the hungry. <laughs> and when he finds somebody that wants them, he goes, man, I'm, I'm ready to be there. 
Over the last couple of years, Sydney and I have become really good friends, this sweet couple in their early 80s. God's just used them to stir up so much in us. They've taught us so much about spiritual hunger. Unbelievable couple. They live out in the middle of nowhere, about an hour from here, like just kind of out in the, the prairies of the suburbs of Murfreesboro. You know, Murfreesboro is a suburb of Nashville. They live outside of Murfreesboro, not far from where my in-laws live. And on this property, they have 150 acres. They have this little barn on their property. And when we first met them, I said, what's the God dream? What's the thing that's stirring up in your heart? And he said, in that barn, I want that barn to become a place where, where heaven and earth collide, where people walk into that barn and they just experience the fire in the presence of Jesus. He goes, we're just gonna worship the Lord there. We're gonna enjoy the Lord. We're gonna celebrate the Lord. And he said, I have this vision of young adults showing up out here in the country and sleeping uh, in the fields around the barn and showing up for worship. And I'm like, man, God, would you give me vision like that when I'm 84. I mean, would you give me a vision like that now? I mean, it's just amazing. And so they start hosting these worship nights. And my in-laws who just live five or six miles away from them get invited to one of these worship nights and they go to it. And as soon as it's done, I called, hey, like, how was the worship night? And they said, this is amazing. I said, tell me about it. And they said, they said, well, you know, this guy gets up and gives his testimony and that was great. And the worship team was amazing. And my mother-in-law is just telling me about this time in the barn. And then she stops, and I hope I never forget this really simple phrase. She goes, she goes, let me tell you everything you need to know about what happened in the barn. She said, the people in that barn really, really like God. <laughs> I go, whoa. Isn't that it? I go, what was the defining characteristic of what was happening in that barn? Man, it wasn't the message, the testimony, the sermon, the strategy. It's that she found herself in a group of people who unapologetically hungered and thirsted for the very presence of God himself. And God loves to show up wherever he's wanted. So he'll receive an invitation to a barn in the, in, in, in the middle of nowhere outside of Murfreesboro. He'll receive an invitation in your church or in your home or in your marriage or on your college campus or in your city or even in our nation. I know that's a far stretch. He will show up wherever he is wanted. And it's amazing what happens when he's wanted, when a group of people say, we don't just want the blessings, we want the blesser. We want the blesser. God, we want you. Because here's the reality. If everything in your church was going great, but God himself wasn't there, you don't have what you need. And if your church in the inverse were to fall apart and nothing work, but you have the Lord himself, you have more than you could ever hope for. And something begins to shift in us when we go, oh man, God does love to show up where he's wanted. And we start asking the question, Lord, do we want you? So I believe that this is gonna become the, the mark of the mature church in the days to come. It's that bridal cry of Revelation 22, verse 17. I love Revelation 22, verse 17. Maybe you remember this verse. It says, the Holy Spirit and the bride, which is the church. Uh, this, is my, this is my kind of like message version. Eugene Peterson can do it, so I'm gonna try doing it too, okay? Like, I love Revelation 22, verse 17. It says, the Holy Spirit and the church say, Jesus, come. We long for you. We're hungry for you. We want you. Come. I was praying into that verse a couple of years ago. 
And I didn't hear an audible voice from God, but I just heard this gentle, just this gentle rebuke in my spirit where the father was just saying, hey, Dave, do you think that I wanna send my son back to receive an apathetic, half-hearted bride? Do you think I wanna send my son back for a church that goes, hey, no, we're good, we've got it, we're pretty happy. <laughs> if you just increase our attendance and our budget and decrease some of our problems and those things, we've got it. He goes, no, he goes, I wanna send you back. I wanna send him back for a church that is longing for him to return. And I believe this is gonna be the mark the mark of what we see cropping up on the landscape of the church both across our nation and across the nations. It will be that Maranatha cry. It will, be the, it will be the longing of the church's heart going, Lord, we want to be with you. <laughs> our family, we vacation every year. We have some friends that have this uh, sweet beach house and they let us use it every year. And so if you have a beach house and you wanna be that kind of friend, we'd love to be friends with you. And it's just a great gift every year. They let us use this. We go to the same spot. It's just been this incredible treasure. And there's this guy that works on the beach that I see him every single year. I see him once a year, same time. And we've kind of built this, this friendship that happens, you know, um, with 52 weeks in between every hang, you know, but we've kind of built this friendship over the years. And, and when I first met him years ago, he had just gotten engaged and, and, not a follower of Jesus and doesn't share the same framework that we do on the world. But, you know, this, this past time I was with them, I said, hey man, how's, how's the wedding? It's the same question I ask them every year. Like, how's marriage? And every year it's, oh, we still haven't set the date. Still not married. And now I go, man, you've been, you've been engaged almost a decade. And it, it's crazy. Like when I'm around him, I go, there, there's this apathy. There's this apathy towards the one who is supposed to be his future bride. And I go, man, the same thing that I see in my friend on the beach is something that breaks my heart that I see in our churches all across the board. And Jesus is going, hey, I love to show up wherever I'm wanted. I love to show up wherever I'm wanted. Martha and Mary and Lazarus said, come on in. Jesus is like, I'll stay there. The Pharisee in Luke 7, come eat with me. I'll go there. Matthew, come hang out with my buddies. Jesus goes, I go there because this is the principle of the Lord. He shows up wherever he's wanted. And this is the question that I've really been wrestling with. It's what we've been talking about with our team. It's what Sydney and I've been talking about in our marriage. It's what we've been wrestling, at, wrestling with with our kids is, okay, when Jesus Christ looks at the Clayton household, forget the church, forget our church, forget our city, forget pinning this on the crowds. When he looks at our home, does he find hunger? I just ask you, when, when he looks at your home, when he looks at your church, when he looks at your ministry, when he looks at your neighborhood, does he find hunger? And there's some of you here this, this, this evening, you're going, man, yeah, he finds hunger. And if that's your story, I'll praise God and here's what I just want to just kind of stir up in you, fan the flame in you, is, is that hunger is contagious. And there's something about being around a hungry person. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you're hanging out with a friend and they're like, do you want to grab a bite to eat? And you're like, I'm not really hungry. And you go and sit down with them and they start eating and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of hungry because hunger is contagious. And, and, and when you're sitting down around someone that's enjoying a feast, man, after all, you guys want a feast. 
And for those of you that are, that are hungry, I go, man, don't hide it. Stir it up, fan it into flame, get in close proximity because your hunger is contagious. And I'm telling you what we need, what we need now more than ever in the midst of an American church that has grown in so many ways, so complacent, so cold, so fearful, so hidden is we don't need sermons, songs, strategies in and of themselves. We need men and women that are burning brightly with this desire for the very presence of God himself that want to sit at his feet, that want to wake up early in the morning to hear, hear his voice, that want to talk with him, not because of what he wants to do or can do, but simply because he's amazing. We need a revival of hungry men and women that understand that one day we will sit in the future kingdom of God and that our physical eyes will look upon the resurrected Jesus. And I'm just telling you, for all of eternity, we are gonna gaze upon his beauty and we will never get tired of looking at how amazing he is. <laughs> just amazing. It's who he is. And some of you are here and you're going, man, I'm hungry. And, and I want to stir that up. I go, man, just keep running. Some of you, maybe after the last couple of years, your hunger has been just kind of knocked out of you a little bit. Or maybe somebody around you has lost their hunger and you're going, okay, well, I know we're supposed to be hungry. How do we stir it up? And I just want to end. This is a workshop. So I want to end with just a few real, hopefully real practical things. Like, how do we stir hunger up? Because here's what's so beautiful is the kingdom of God works so fundamentally different than the kingdom of men. And so revival is never about a numbers game. It's just a hunger game. I didn't even mean for that to be like that. That's kind of weird. <laughs> May make the Christian camp t-shirt. The hunger games, and it's all about prayer, you know, but um, no, it's, it's just, hey, a handful of people are hungry for the Lord. He goes, I see you, I'm there. Where two or three are gathered, I wanna be there. Is that, is that an amazing proposition? That you, have to, you don't have to go back and get your whole church on this huge campaign and get 80% of them in for this to work. That it may be six widows at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning that actually want God more than they want their health to be restored. And it's in that room that the fire of God falls and salvation breaks out in your church and young men are being delivered, not because your youth pastor got things together, but because there were some women that dared to be hungry in the church again. Come on. <laughs> so how do we stir up the hunger? In ourselves, how do we stir up the hunger in those around us? I'll just give you a few simple things. The first is it starts with us just acknowledging anywhere we are experiencing a lack of hunger. We acknowledge, we acknowledge our lack of hunger. We, we acknowledge our lack of desire. I love the way that, that Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes because it's so upside down. He says, he says, blessed are those who are rich in spirit and have it all figured out. Is that how it goes? He goes, no, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are on fumes. Blessed are those, not because they're on fumes, but blessed are those who have the ability to recognize that they're running on spiritual fumes. Because only when you come to that place of being able to acknowledge your spiritual neediness is your heart even open enough to receive the outpouring of what God wants to do. As long as there is any hint of self-sufficiency left within us, there is no room for revival. Revival begins at the end of ourselves. It begins, as what David Young said earlier, he could have stopped right after that point. You know, the best theology is done when we're on our backs, flat on our backs. Can't, the, the, the best 
work of God is stirred up when we come face to face with this reality that we're not as hungry as we want to be. And so we acknowledge it. You know, one of, the, one of the prayers that we try to pray as a church, we try to pray this pretty regularly, is, hey, Lord, we want to want to want you. <laughs> Sounds like a bad 80s song. Because <laughs> the reality is, I mean, sometimes life, let's just be honest, sometimes life is so good, like right after this, I'm gonna preach and then I'm gonna go watch one of my sons play baseball. The weather is perfect. I'm gonna eat trash food and sit there and watch him play baseball. And I'm just telling you, it's a moment I wish I could freeze in time because life is so sweet. And I love the sweet moments in life. But have you ever noticed that sometimes life can be so sweet that it dulls our senses to the things that we're actually meant to crave? And so sometimes it just starts with acknowledging, hey, Lord, I know that I'm supposed to want you more than I do. I don't know how to want you more than I do right now. So would you help me want to want you? I want to want. <laughs> I want to want to want you. So we start in this, this place of acknowledging, like even, even giving the people around us the permission to acknowledge the lack of hunger. Now, once again, I, I don't want to normalize lukewarmness because it's a fine line. <laughs> I don't want to normalize apathy. I don't want to take apathy and baptize it and turn it into an accountability group where there's no accountability, <laughs> But it starts in this place of acknowledgement. How do we create a culture where we can go, hey, we acknowledge our lack of hunger, give people the tools to ask for hunger. Number two, it's not just acknowledging our hunger. Second thing is we ask the Lord to make us hungry. We ask the Lord to make us hungry. I love in the Beatitudes as well, Jesus goes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be what? Somebody shouted out, for they will be They'll be filled. Hunger precedes the filling. See, a lot of times I get in these prayer meetings, we're praying for filling, we're praying for fire, we're praying for outpouring, but we don't want hunger. <laughs> we're like, hey God, we're already stuffed with the junk food of the world. Would you just kind of pour some sprinkles on top, some of that Holy Spirit goodness, some of that Holy Spirit power so you can just kind of give us this feeling of life and joy and conviction. He goes, no, I wanna empty you. I wanna starve you of the things of the world and then I wanna pour out my presence on you. I wanna make you hungry. And when you're hungry, then I'll fill you. Remember years ago, I was going to seminary and so much of my hunger for God in that season, I'm not passing that off on anyone other than myself, but in that season, so much of my hunger for God was kind of just being, you know, just is, is waning. I don't know how else to say it. It's just waning. My, my, my head was outpacing my heart. My education was outpacing my obedience. And so over time, my, my, my hunger for God was beginning to grow cold. And I remember I was in seminary and maybe some of you can relate to this. This is embarrassing, but I remember in seminary, I lost my Bible. I lost my Bible and it was gone literally for almost an entire semester. Now, here's the embarrassing part. I didn't notice it was gone. Now, this was before phone, like iPhones. And so I wasn't, I can't even make the excuse while I was reading on my phone. Like here I was like in seminary. And I remember uh, Sydney, who's now my wife, she and I were um, engaged at the time. They found the Bible um, in the lobby of her apartment complex and turned it back in. She goes, hey, you found your Bible. How long has it been missing? And I immediately remembered because I remembered when it was that we'd been sitting there. I go, oh my goodness, I missed my Bible for four months and didn't even know it was gone. And man, God just used that to convict me. And I remember going home and we're visiting my, my parents. My dad's a preacher. He's 42 years in, just faithful. My mom's so faithful, love them to death. 
I love their public ministry, but the thing that blessed me deeply was that their private life was so much better even than their public life, which is so rare. I just felt like our church was getting cheated. It's like if only you could see who they really are, not perfect, but who they really are. Unbelievable people. I remember coming home to, to visit my family and uh, each night I'd walk past my mom's room and uh, she'd be sitting in this little chair and she'd be reading her Bible. And my dad's always like, hey, you saw me reading my Bible too. And I'm like, I know, but you're the preacher. And I thought you had to do it. You know, my mom, she didn't have to do it. You know, she's just a Christian, <laughs> which shows you how I thought as a 23 year old. But um, I remember seeing my mom reading the scriptures every night and I had this one moment of just audacious humility, which uh, was not the norm for me in that season of life. And I had to humble myself and say, Mom, I have not been reading the word the way that I want. I lost my Bible, didn't even notice it. Can you tell me how you got to this? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, hey, David, when I was in my early 30s, she said, I did not really desire to be with the Lord. I didn't. Des- I went to church. She said, I didn't desire his word. She said, so the only thing I knew how to do was in desperation, I started asking God every night to make me hungry for his word. She said, he made me hungry. And what I found is hungry people go looking for food. <laughs> And I'm like, man, that's fire. And so what do, we do? what do we do? What do we do when we're not hungry or not as hungry as we want to be? One, we acknowledge the lack of hunger. We acknowledge that that's a problem. We create space for it. We, we ask for, uh, we, we, number two, then we just ask God, would you make us hungry? And so we acknowledge it and then we ask him for hunger. We ask it over and over and over. Guys, this is a cheat code for those of you that are in ministry. If in the mornings you would just get up and you just pray for your people and go, hey, God, would you make our church more hungry for your word today than they will be for success, for friendship, for sexual fulfillment, for breakthrough? And like, would you just, would you let our people be famished for your word in such a way that they can't get their face out of this book? <laughs> be a pretty good thing, wouldn't it? So we acknowledge, we ask, number three, and then we have to resist. There's some things that we have to resist. If we want to be hungry for the Lord, we have to resist the temptation to fill our souls with the junk food of the age. Every night, Sydney's going to make a, a huge feast for our family. She's a great cook. I'm so blessed. Go home. I can't cook a thing. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you gave me a wife that can cook. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter how good the feast is. If on the way home every night I stop at McDonald's and go through the drive-thru and I fill up on, on junk food, I get home, I don't enjoy the food. And I think what happens sometimes when, when we begin to, to pray that the Lord would stir our souls, that he'd put this hunger in us again, there's this uncomfortable reality that comes with the soul that's beginning to hunger for God again. And there's this temptation for us to begin filling that hole, filling that void with the junk food of the age. And so I'm just telling you, what is easier at 10 p.m. after you've put the kids in bed and after you've caught up on the day with your wife, it's, is it easier to watch four shows on Netflix and fall asleep numbed out than it is to think about what God's stirring in your heart? Absolutely. And sometimes it's even more enjoyable is it easier to in, entertain ourselves into oblivion? Is it, is it easier? Is it easier to busy ourselves with work or things around the house? I'm not saying any of those things are inadvertently wrong with them, uh, wrong in and of themselves. But if we're not careful, we will feast on the junk food of the temporary at the sake of forfeiting the eternal. 
And so it's not just acknowledging our lack of hunger. It's not just asking that God would put the hunger in. But when the hunger shows up, we have to resist the urge to fill the hunger with lesser things. And so we acknowledge, we ask, we resist. Number four, we then begin to calibrate the taste buds of our souls to eternal things. I guarantee you, as we leave this conference over the next couple of days, at some point, all of us will have a moment where we think back on the talk that David Young gave to start the day, and there'll be something in us that will go, okay, what was it about that talk? Here's what it was about that talk. We're recognizing a man whose heart has been tuned in to the eternal, right? And, and there's something about that when a heart gets tuned into the eternal, and so how, how do we cultivate this hunger? We acknowledge, we, we ask, we resist, but then we, we have to calibrate the taste buds of our souls to the heavenly things. And you know, sometimes this is just as simple as sitting around a dinner table with your friends or your family going, hey, what do you think it's gonna be like when we're sitting in the future kingdom of God with resurrected King Jesus, like, what's that going to be like? We love having those conversations. You know, we have three boys, 12, 10, and eight years old, and we're like, hey, what do you think the future kingdom's going to be like? And their answers are so, they're hilarious and amazing, you know? Because it's, it's always like what you'd expect. It's, you know, I mean, you're going to have, you know, pizza every night, and no sadness, and no fear, and we're going to jump into a swimming pool made of money, and I'm like, I think that's ducktails, you know? <laughs> I don't think that's heaven. I'm not sure, you know, but just like what they're trying to express is this, this unrestrained goodness that just goes on forever and ever. And you know what's fun is when we sit around and we think about the inheritance that awaits us, do you know what happens in us? Is we begin to crave it even more. <laughs> you begin to long for it. You go, oh, I want that. I want that. I see it. I think about one of my friends who, his grandparents, just uber, I mean, like so crazy wealthy. <laughs> and so my friend knows when he hits a certain age, he's going to get more money than he'll ever be able to spend in his lifetime. <laughs> and every now and then we'll just kind of sit around going, hey, what are you going to do with the inheritance? We're all trying to keep close friendship. We're like, hey, you want to hook us up? But, you know, and, and our, our motives are pure and, and they're purely for ourselves. That's what I mean by that. But it's like, hey, what are you going to do with that? And what's funny is he sits around and he thinks about his earthly inheritance. It's kind of fun. It stirs something up in him. When followers of Jesus sit around and we begin to calibrate the taste buds of our heart for the spiritual inheritance that's coming our way, this hunger begins to bubble up. And so what do we do when we don't see hunger? Man, we acknowledge it. We ask for more. We resist feasting and numbing ourselves on the junk food of the age. We calibrate the taste buds of our soul to the eternal. And then last but not least, we persistently and consistently invite Jesus into every area of our life. I've always wondered how many people there were in the town of Capernaum that had it dawn on, dawn on them after Jesus left. Wait, I wonder, had we asked him over for dinner if he would have come? <laughs> There's all these stories about him just showing up and hanging out in these homes and doing these things. And I go, it, it all begins with a simple invitation. Hey, can, can you just come over and hang out? So Jesus says in Revelation 3, that lukewarm cold church, he goes, man, I stand at the door and I, 
And he goes, and if you would just open, he goes, I would love to come in. I would love to come in. And I go, so the way that we, we stir this up, the way that we fan this flame, it's not about how do we win over the masses. It's not how we strategize for the sake of a region or a nation or a city. I'm not against any of those things. In fact, we give a lot of time and energy to bringing our city together in moments of prayer and fasting. But at the end of the day, I believe that God is looking for one man, one woman, one group of friends, one small church, one, de- one declining little church in the middle of nowhere that is just audacious enough to believe that God is a keeper of promises that he longs to hang out with people that want to be with him. And that the prerequisite for a great move of God in our day is not our wisdom and not our strategy, and it's not how good we've put things together, but at the end of the day that Christ will look at our hearts and he goes, man, Chip wants me, Buddy wants me, (laughs) Paul wants me, Megan, oh man, she wants me. And God goes, I want you. And I believe we're in a moment right now where everything we've talked about all day has been so good. It's been so needed. It's so important. But without hunger, without hunger, it falls flat. And I have no desire to stand in front of Jesus one day with a whole bunch of people that were a part of our church and go, hey, Lord, look at all of these people that came to our church and we all kind of liked you. (laughs) Look at all these people that thought you were worth it whenever the weather was bad and their boat wasn't able to be out on the lake. Look at all these people that are here. Look at all these people that think you're awesome when the Titans are playing on the road, but not at home. Look at all of these people that, that find you attractive as long as you don't step on their way of life or their rule of life or whatever. No, I wanna stand in front of the Lord, whether there's a few thousand of us or there's a few dozen of us, and we stand before you and we go, hey, Lord, you're the one that we've been built for. You're the one that we want. You're the one that we long for, and we've been waiting, and we welcome you back in, King Jesus. And so that's what I want to encourage you with as you go home. It's not just a renewal of strategy, not just a renewal of purpose, not just a renewal of doctrine. All those things are great, but that there'd be a renewal of Holy Spirit-infused hunger and that we'd experience in our day and in our lifetime a Cane Ridge moment or a out-in-the-fields-of-India moment or a bottom-of-a-cruise-ship-in-Alaska moment or an Acts chapter 2 kind of moment. But that in all of it, we'd, be, we'd believe that, man, before Acts 2 happens, you have the hunger seen in Acts 1. I really appreciate Dave's thoughts and his attitude on this, that, man, God really desires our hearts. He desires that we are looking to him and seeking him out. We will be back on Thursday with another episode for you. Looking forward to our time together then.